Everybody? That's perfect. My name is Joe. I am blessed and excited to be with you all here this morning. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians called No Other Gospel. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles there to Galatians chapter 3. Last week we were in the first half of Galatians chapter 3, and so today we're going to be in that second half starting in verse 19. But before we actually start to dig into the Word, I want to introduce you all to something called the Gospel Grid. The Gospel Grid is a visual aid that helps us to understand how the Gospel changes our hearts and therefore our lives. Again, the Gospel Grid is a visual aid to help you and I to understand how the Gospel changes our hearts and therefore changes our lives. It looks something like this. I'm going to try to draw thick. This is a new marker, so it draws really thin. So I'm going to try to make this thick for everybody here. This line right here is a timeline. At some point, you were born, right? And if you're here today, there's a really good chance someone has preached the gospel to you, and you put your faith in Jesus. So you heard the gospel at a point in time in your life right here. When you heard the gospel, you started to understand a little bit that God is holy. There's an element of purity to God that we don't quite have. He's holy. He's perfect. We're not, right? So we start, our view of God started to build up a, a, a little bit. Well, at the same time, we started to hear the testimony of Scripture about how broken our own hearts are, how dirty our hearts are. So we started to understand a little bit of our depravity or again, our dirty heartedness. And we recognize that Jesus fills this gap by his sacrifice on the cross, right? But then as we grow and we mature, we learn more about how holy God really is. He's got these creatures that surround his throne and, and, and never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy. And he's, his throne is surrounded by a sea that's like glass, right? It's, it's pure, it's ultimate, it's fantastic. And so our knowledge of God's holiness grows as we grow in Jesus, as we're maturing our understanding of God's holiness grows and grows, and so does our view of just how holy He is. At the same time, you and I continue to learn more about Scripture and hear more of the testimony about our own hearts, and then we fail so often to do the things we know we should do. We either fail to do what we should do, or we do what we shouldn't. And so our hearts prove themselves to us to be more and more filthy as our lives move forward. And so what happens is we continue to recognize that Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross fills that gap. And so this cross grows bigger and bigger in our estimation as we understand that God is holy. Don't misunderstand me here. God doesn't get more holy, right? But our understanding of his holiness grows and so we start to go, wow, man, he's really, really holy, and man, I'm really, really bad. And this chasm between God and man is bridged by the cross, and that cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in our estimation, and our gratefulness then motivates us to turn around and live life in a different way, right? We don't want to live the way that we used to because we see more and more of just how much Jesus actually did on our behalf. This is called the Gospel Grid. I'm going to be referencing this uh, throughout the sermon this, this morning, so I wanted to show that to you all 
to help you to kind of understand where I'm at. I want you to see what I'm seeing. I believe that our text this morning is going to speak uh, in many ways directly to this visual aid in, in what the Apostle Paul is also trying to paint his, his picture. So uh, let's go ahead and let's read. Again, we're going to start in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 3. We're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 7. Let's read. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an, in, an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons." Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Galatians. Uh, Father, I'm, I'm very grateful that you put, uh, that you allowed this situation to take place in the church in Galatia so that we in the year 2018 could be sitting in a big room and talking about the purpose of your law and the, uh, the amazingness of your gospel. Father, I pray that your spirit would move in all of our hearts, Lord, and including mine, uh, and would we grow to love you in a deeper way here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in, in our text this morning, there are three major questions that the Apostle Paul wants to address. The first question is this. It's pretty obvious in verse 19, right? The very first thing, why then the law? The Apostle Paul is in the middle of an argument against the Judaizers. I'm going to talk about who they are in just a second. But he's just made this statement that the law was never intended to give life. That the promise is always the way that life has come. That the law that was given 430 years afterward doesn't change the promise. The promise is how life has always been given through faith in the promises of God. And so this law doesn't change anything. And so the natural question that we might have, and that certainly I'm sure the Galatians had, was then, why was the law given? Like, what's the point of giving us the law if it wasn't intended to give us life? So Paul wants to address that question here in this text. Second question is this, what does it mean for you and I if we want to resubmit ourselves to the law, right? You've got these, 
uh, Judaizers that have come in. Paul and Barnabas came in and planted a church. The Judaizers kind of followed up behind them. This was a group of Jewish people who believed in Jesus, but also believed that you needed to obey the law, right? You're, you're, you're only halfway there if you believe in Jesus. You've got to o- obey the law. And so Paul is writing over and against them. So he's saying, if you want to resubmit yourself to the law, to the Mosaic law, this is what this means for you. He's going to answer that question. What does that, what does that mean for us? And the third question is this. How does faith in Jesus change the way that you and I relate to the law and to God? How does faith in Jesus change the way that you and I relate to both God and to the law? So let's go ahead and let's start rereading our text. That's kind of the way I want to approach this. I want to read this text with you a little bit more slowly. And we're going to break it down as it comes at us uh, in Scripture. He says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So we need to just hit the pause button for a second and talk about this verse that seems like it's so out of place when you're reading. I feel like the Apostle Paul is like, why the law? I'll tell you why the law. And then he gets into an intermediary thing and it's like, okay, where, 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 what? Like, you know, I was thinking maybe he had started a pot of coffee when he first started writing the book of Galatians. And by the time he's at chapter three, he's three cups in, feeling the caffeine. And he's just like kind of all over the place. Uh, I will also say this, I'm not going to claim to have the perfect interpretation of this text. I've heard there's like 300 interpretations of it. But what I believe that the Apostle Paul is saying in this text, again, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, is this. When the law was given, right, you've got God on Mount Sinai. You've got Moses who goes up to meet God on Mount Sinai. He's the intermediary that Paul is referring to. And then you've got the people of God who are down at the foot of the mountain. And so there are two contributing parties to this covenant. God gives his law. He says if you obey it, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, life will not go well for you. And then he gives this law to Moses. Moses brings it back down to the people and they say, yes, we will obey this law that was given. So you've got two contributing parties to this covenant when the law was given, right? An intermediary implies more than one. And then he says, but God is one. If you remember in the book of Galatians, the whole book is really about the superiority of the gospel over the law to give life. He's making the same argument here. What he's saying is this, God made a promise and there's only one party that that promise depends on and that's God, right? He is faithful to fulfill his promises. The law is weak, just based purely on the fact that there's an intermediary. It's God and someone else has to contribute. And guess what? There's only one party here that's faithful. It's God. Therefore, the promise is stronger than the law because the law requires two parties to contribute, right? There's two parties that have to contribute, whereas the promise comes from God alone and is fulfilled by God alone. Alone, I believe that that is what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and it seems to make the most sense with the context of this book. Let's keep on reading. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, the 
at this point, Paul has given us three reasons that the law was given. There are three reasons that the apostle has given us now that the law was given. The first is very obvious, right up front, right? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It's a very vague thing, right? When you read this, it's like, I don't think I quite understand what he's saying. But it just so happens that he's also writing to the the Romans, right? We're in Galatians. He's also writing to the Galatians uh, about basically the same thing. And he has a commentary on this idea of the law was added because of sin. So go ahead and flip your Bibles back to Romans chapter 7. And we will start reading in verse 7. says this, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it, had, it, yet it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. But once a I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you were to hop in your car right now and you didn't know what the speed limit was down Harrogate Road, you're kind of looking around, you feel like it's pretty sparse. So you'd figure it's probably right around 60. So you start doing 60 miles an hour down Harrogate Road. Speed limit's 45, right? It's wrong. Even if you don't know it's wrong, going 60 miles an hour down Harrogate Road is still wrong, and for the record, it will still get you a ticket, right? Even if you don't know. But, Paul is saying, if you know the speed limit is 45 miles an hour, and you choose to still go 60, you're like, oh, yeah, speed limit sign, 45, oh, well, right? And you just keep on gunning and keep on rolling down this road. It's even worse, Because you know what the commandment is. There's a part of you that's now purposefully being oppositional toward God or to the law in this particular instance, right? This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying before the law was given. He's not saying sin didn't exist. He's saying it was there, but the law was added so that we might see the depth of our own brokenness in our hearts, Once, he says, the law came, something came alive within me, and I said, no, 45 miles an hour, man, I'm going to smash that. How about 90, right? There's something that comes alive in us. It's called sin, right? Whenever we see the commandment of God that says, you know what, man, I I don't like it. I'm going to break it. I'm going to smash that commandment. There's something that comes alive in us. And that's the reason, Paul says, that the law was given was to help us to understand the depth of our own brokenness, the dirtiness of our own hearts. It was put in place because of transgressions so that you and I might know the depth of our own brokenness in our hearts. Amen. Back to our text. 
in Galatians chapter 3. The second reason that the law was given is, is, is seen in the first half of verse 22. He says, but the scripture, that word is graphe, or it's a technical term for the Old Testament, so really the whole Old Testament. He says, but the Old Testament imprisoned everything under sin. Okay? Again, this law is given and is put over all of mankind. Even if they didn't know it was over them, it was given directly to Israel, to God's people. And there's this bar that's put over top of all of humanity. And God says, that's my standard for your life. What happens is we look at that and we say, man, I, I can't reach that. Right? I mean, we, we typically think when, when, when we think of the law of God of the Ten Commandments. Right? We do kind of poorly at keeping the Ten Commandments. What we fail to realize is that there are 613 commands and prohibitions in the Torah. We can't follow 10 of them. There's another 603 we haven't even looked at. Right? There's this amazing high level that we're supposed to be reaching. And the Word of God says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We are in, in captivity under the standard that God has put in place. And the purpose for that standard is, guess what? To show us God's amazing, fantastic holiness. His standard for our lives, right? So we've got this law that shows us how incredibly broken we are by, by giving sin an opportunity to show us how terrible we are. We've got, at the same time, this amazing standard that God has put out over our lives, and it's supposed to make us feel anxious and frustrated and realize that we, we can't do it. We can't do this. It's supposed to build a sense of frustration and angst within us. The third reason that the law was given is in that second half of verse 22. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, it's a purpose clause whenever you're reading scripture and you, you see that, pay attention, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What he's saying is this, yeah, it's intended to give you a sense of angst to realize that you can't do it, so you would run to Jesus. Right? The law is ultimately intended not to give you life, but to point you to the only one who can give you life, namely Jesus. He says you, you, you can't do the law. Even if you didn't have the broken nature that you have, you still couldn't really complete the law. But you're even more broken than that, right? And so it's designed, the law is designed to ultimately eradicate sin by pointing you and I to Jesus, to the gospel, the only one who can actually save us. We can't save ourselves. We can't do it. That's the reason the law was given, according to the Apostle Paul. Second question was this, uh, what does it mean for you and I if we want to resubmit ourselves to the law or for us today? What does it mean for you and I if we want to try to earn God's love, to try to earn our own salvation? The first one has already been said, his first point, and that's this. You are, you are taking the weight of perfection into your own hands. God doesn't grade on a curve. 
He doesn't grade on a curve. Your expectation, if you want to earn God's love, is perfection. You can't look and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm better than Aaron. You know, he always says he has a dirty heart. I don't feel like I have a dirty heart, right? That's not the way that it works. There is no curve. It's not I'm better than 80% of the people who are in the world. That, that, that's not the gospel. That's not the way that God operates. It, sa- it says his, his standard is absolute perfection. If you're choosing to set aside the grace of God and try to earn God's love on your own merits, you are saying you are going to live a perfect life. Not only that, really, you've always had to have lived a perfect life. We've already broken that, right? That's what it means for you and I if we really are saying we want to take this law on on our own selves, right? If we're saying we want to resubmit ourselves to the law, we want to try to earn God's love, setting aside the grace of God found in Jesus, we're saying that we're going to live a perfect life. Let's keep reading in verse 23, and we will run into our next reason, or I should say answer to that question. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. He says, in Christ, the dividing walls that are held between both God and man and between man and man will be broken down, right? They're no longer existing in Christ. He says, but if you want to resubmit yourself to the law, if you want to try to earn your own salvation, those walls will continue to stand, Right? We, we, we prove this in our lives over and over and over again. But he says, you will continue to live oppressing other people. You're going to continue to walk in such a way where you feel proud either, right? If you try to obey the law, one of two things will happen. You're going to be depressed because you realize you really, really fall short. Or you're going to somehow think you're actually doing it. And you're going to become prideful and arrogant. And you're going to walk around and you're going to ask yourself the question, how come they aren't as good as me? How come no one else can do this? Why am I so much better? There's something wrong with these people. And anyone who's not like you, you're going to start to hold this disdain toward because they're not like you. The gospel breaks down those walls. But trying to earn your own salvation, all the philanthropy in the world is not going to change the world. It's not going to save anyone, including yourself, right? I mean, there's, there's no political party that's going to save the world. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent. Listen, I don't care if you're, you want to vote for your dear old grandma. I'm sure she's fantastic, but she's not going to save the world. Jesus alone. The gospel alone is the answer for humanity. Amen? Amen. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you want to resubmit yourself, you're going to walk in sin and you're going to continue to spread sin across this planet. Jesus is the only answer. 
Finally, his, his, his third point is also an implied point in this text, and I'm not going to belabor this. At the end of the day, he's saying, you're not going to make it. I mean, it's, it's perfection, and it's already broken, so you're not going to make it. Why even try? Why are you going to try to resubmit yourself to the law? It's, it's, it's a broken system. It doesn't work. Stop. Stop trying to do that. That would be his third point. It's, it's not going to happen. You're not going to have joy in this life. You're not going to have joy in the next. His third question, again, for this morning would be this. How does faith in Jesus change the way that you and I relate to God and to the law? Again, how does faith in Jesus change the way that you and I relate to God and to the law? I believe he answers that uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and let's read that now. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. First way that faith in Jesus changes the way we relate to the law and to God is this. And I think it's pretty obvious you're, you're no longer under the law, Right? He, he, he calls it a teacher. He calls it a guardian. Again, it's meant to point you to Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, he says, you're, you're not under the law any, anymore. You, you're, you're under Jesus. You're in Christ. There's no longer a need for you to be trying to make this happen. Just continue to grow and recognize what Jesus has done on your behalf. You're set free from the law. You no longer have to live according to to that Mosaic law. You no longer have to try to earn your own salvation, Chester Christian Church. Second thing is this. He says, you're an heir. And I I honestly believe that there is a lot to unpack in this idea of being an heir. I'm not going to try to unpack all of it with you here today, uh, but I do want to focus on something I believe that the word focuses on, uh, especially... uh, Starting in verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because your sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When I say you're an heir, what I'm saying to you is this. You have a family. Um, looking around you, yes, this is your family in Christ, but we aren't the stars of this family, right? I mean, we aren't, we aren't really the big deal of this family. The big deal is, is God, God the Father. What it means to be an heir is you have a father who is fully committed to you. And I want to be very clear I'm talking about you as individuals here, 2018 Chester Christian Church. God loves and is committed to you as a person. So much that, right, 
He said, it says he wants you to call him dad. That's what this word Abba means, Abba Father. Has, it, has anyone ever been around someone who, when praying, calls God daddy? If you're that person, that's okay with me. That's what this text says. He wants you to call him daddy, dad, right? But that's the level of devotion that he has to you, the level of commitment. He wants you to call him dad. Right? You are adopted into this family. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to reject you. And he's never going to abandon you. These are the two, two of the largest fears that we have as a, a person. Are a fear of rejection and a fear of abandonment. And you need to know that when you're an heir, when you put your faith in Jesus, God is committed to you. You will never be rejected by him. Jesus has done everything that you need to do for all of your life, period, right? The, the, the obedience, the little things that we do are, are, are done out of a place of joy, not out of a place of, 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 of trying to earn God's love now. And if you only have faith in Jesus, Jesus is enough, Right? Jesus has done everything that it takes to put you in the presence of God for all of eternity. You will never be rejected. I grew up with a fear of abandonment. I didn't know that I was ever going to find a love that wouldn't leave me. Personally. That was, that was mine. That was my thing. And it took talking with someone and them explaining to me, God is never going to leave you. You're never going to be abandoned. And the moment that I stopped and I realized that God was that love that I was looking for. God is the love who is never going to leave you. That's what it means to be an heir, you guys. Like, God is fully committed to you. Last week we talked about the, the great exchange, right? That, that God... Put all of our sins, Jesus took every sin, all of our sin, all of our shame on himself on, on that cross. And at the same time, he took all of his perfect righteousness and he gave it to us, right? It's the great exchange. And we say that when God looks down from heaven, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see dirty-hearted Joe. He doesn't see dirty-hearted Aaron. He doesn't see dirty-hearted you, you name it. Put your name here, right? He sees Jesus. That's, that's what we say. And I want to qualify that a, a little bit with you all because uh, in my theological camp, I can be a little bit self-beating up, right? I'm, I'm good at beating myself up. But I want you to know, God loves you as an individual. The great exchange is not like God's looking down from heaven and he sees literally Jesus, literally Jesus is, right? Little Jesus that makes the same exact decisions every time. That's not who he sees. The great exchange is talking about righteousness. Ladies, listen, he loves you and he loves your weird LuLaRoe leggings, okay? He loves them. Pastor Aaron, Robin, they have a little boy named Shepard. Shepard loves the color green. I mean, that kid loves the color green. If y'all saw him for uh, the trunk or treat thing, he was like decked out in nothing but green. God loves that. He loves that about Shepard. He loves color green. Man. And it's the same with you and I today. He loves you in your weird quirkiness. 
If you're like me, you are weird and quirky, right? That's the truth of the gospel. The great exchange doesn't take away your personality. It takes away your sin. God is fully committed to you as a person when you are an heir. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become an heir, and God is fully committed to you as a person, who you are today sitting in this seat. Third point, uh, which I will not belabor, on how does faith in Jesus change the way that we relate to God and to the law, is this. We have an inheritance. That's, That's one of the things it really just means to be an heir. We have an inheritance. We get to be with God forever. That's, that's our great inheritance. It's not money. It's not good looks, or I'd be out. Right? It's, it's not any of those things. It's not a boat, even though I would love to have a boat. It's God himself. God is our inheritance. In the beginning, right, God was our God. We were his people, and he lived with us. At the end, behold, the, 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 the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what we're after. We're after the very presence of God. And through faith in Christ, we get both now and for eternity to be in the presence of God. That's what we want, right? Psalm 1611 says, uh, you've shown to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. I'm not going to do a perfect job of quoting it, but Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who's going through a field, and he runs into this incredible treasure in this field. It says, and in his joy, he turns around and he sells everything that he has to buy that field because of the amazing treasure that he had found in that field. If we understood the depth of the amazingness of what it means to be in the presence of God, what Jesus has done on our behalf, he says we would would give all our stuff away for a nickel if it meant we got to be with Jesus. That's what we get. That is our inheritance. I'm not claiming to have a full understanding of it. I'm looking forward to the day when I get to see it face to face. Amen? Amen. That's what it means to be an heir, right? The law was given to show us the dirtiness of our hearts. The incredible, immaculate, amazing glory of God and what we're called to. And to push us directly toward Jesus. That's why the law was given. If we want to resubmit ourselves to the law, if we want to try to earn our own salvation, it's it's not going to go well for us. We're not going to make it in the end at all. We're going to continue to spread sin And we're going to have to live a perfect life. And it's just not going to happen. But faith in Jesus means we're an heir. We have a family. God is fully committed to us through our faith in Jesus. And we get to live with a greater joy today and with a greater joy for eternity because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, once again, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your great, deep, and exceeding affections for us. Lord, your word says that you sing over us. Uh, Lord, would we, would, we, would we be reminded of that? Would we be reminded of everything that you've done to usher us back into your presence? 
remind us of how holy you are and how broken we are, but that Jesus became a man, that God became a man and took all of our sin and shame on himself and he was killed when we should have been killed and that he gave us his perfect righteousness and now today at Chester Christian Church we sit justified, pure, holy, blameless and welcomed into our Father's house, our Dad's house. Father, would we never take that lightly? Would you be honored in our lives for the rest of this week? In Jesus' name, amen.